Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back to part two of Charles Manson. If you guys are on Patreon, you're hearing this immediately, so you're getting us in your earbuds for like, I don't know, five hours, however long this series (laughs) ends up being. Um, Or if you guys are not on Patreon, you got a little week break, and here we are again. Um... Like we mentioned last time, we're not gonna we're not gonna bullshit too much in the beginning because there's a lot of stuff to get to. So I think we're just gonna dive on in and tell you the rest of this um, wild story. Yeah, and this part, um, as far as story wise, is longer than last week. So yeah, we're <laughs> just gonna, you know, a minute in, just get into it. So yes. um, where we left off, we were kind of talking about Charles Manson and his past. We already kind of told you about the Tate and LaBianca murders um, and the mor- murder of the Hinman murder, I think, as well. Yes, Gary um, Hinman. Yes. Uh, so kind of left off. We talked about all those in part one. Obviously, if you're listening to this and haven't listened to part one, <laughs> it's kind of important. So you might want to go back and listen just in case somehow you found your way here by accident. Yes. Okay. And now we are back to the Tate and LaBianca investigations, and police have just learned that a Manson family member named Susan Atkins admitted to being at the Hinman murder. Um, She also said that she stabbed a man in the leg, and police are wondering if this is Frykowski. So, as previously mentioned, on October 10th, police raided Barker Ranch for other unrelated charges. So, Clem Tufts, which his real name is Steve Grogan, and... Hugh, Rocky, Todd were asleep with a sawed-off shotgun between them when police arrested them. And they later found out they had been waiting for Stephanie Schramm and Kitty Lutzinger, who had fled the ranch the day before. And lookout Robert Ivan Lane was asleep and was arrested as well. So these lookouts are not doing a great job because they're all sleeping. I mean, I guess if you're just, like, constantly doing drugs, like, you gotta sleep at some point. I mean, <laughs> your upper gotta come down at some point. <laughs> so, officers also found another lookout post that was hidden. Um, they almost passed it, but they actually saw a woman walk out, pee in the bushes, and go back inside. So, they're like, thank you for yes leading us right to you. I appreciate that. So they ended up dropping a large rock on the tin roof of the lookout, and three women ran out and were arrested. Um, Other women were arrested in the ranch house, along with a group near Myers Ranch. And a total of 10 women and three men were arrested, ranging in age from 16 to 26. Two babies were also found. Susan Atkins had a baby named Zizososi Zadfrak Glutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Sure. um, Who was one. I'm sure she changed, he, she changed their name uh, <laughs> when they got older, because what is that? <laughs> yeah. And Sandra Good had a one-month-old named Sunstone Hawk, and both babies were badly sunburned. Um, there were a lot of stolen vehicles, knives, food, and other supplies around the ranch, and those arrested were taken to the nearby city of Independence and booked, and the officers returned for a second raid on October 12th. There was a group of men and women sitting around the kitchen table that were marched outside and arrested. Um, There was no sign of the group's leader, so the detective searched again, and it was dark at this point, and he had to use a candle that was burning inside a jar in the house for light. 
and in the bathroom, he saw hair sticking out the top of the cabinet. And the detective was like, that space is too small for <laughs> any adult to be hiding. But then a short man with long hair emerged from the cabinet, and he made a joke about being glad to be out of that cramped space. Um, this space would later, later be measured as three feet by one and a half feet by one and a half feet. So how? <laughs> it's It seems literally impossible. I just do not understand. Like, you have to be, I mean, obviously he was a very tiny man anyway, but you have to be, like, folded up in such a, like. Like a, contor- a contortionist yeah. or something in there. I guess all the drugs, you don't feel any pain, so you can just <laughs> do whatever. I mean, I guess if there's a will, there's a way. If True. you're like, I have to get in here. <laughs> He was dressed entirely in buckskins, and when asked what his name was, he answered, Charlie Manson. Several more individuals were arrested outside, and there was even a group returning in a car from getting groceries that was arrested as well. On the way to be booked, Manson told the detectives that the blacks were going to take over the country, and his group was just looking for a quiet, peaceful place away from the conflict. Again, we are just quoting what he said. Don't say that we're saying this. Yes. We would not use that terminology. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, getting ahead of the commenters. (laughs) Yes. Several times this group responded amen to something that Charlie said. And another time, some of the girls would be chatting and giggling and he would stare at them and they would stop. So it was clear that he had a lot of power over this group. Um, They were charged with grand theft auto, arson, and various other charges. And Charles Manson was booked as Manson Charles M, a.k.a. Jesus Christ God. Which this man, y'all, okay, kind of now makes me want to, at my job, look up Jesus Christ <laughs> and see if anyone has tried to try to be booked under the name Jesus Christ. I'm sure he's not the only he one. So let us know what you find. There's some kooky cocoa puffs out there, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Susan Atkins was already in custody from the Barker raid when she was questioned on October 13th. She confirmed Kitty's story and said that Bobby was the one that pulled out a knife and stabbed Gary Hinman's face. She said they spent two days in his house taking turns sleeping so that Hinman couldn't escape. And on the third day, she was in the kitchen and Hinman yelled, Don't, Bobby, before staggering into the kitchen with a chest wound. They attempted to wipe the house clean of fingerprints, but a palm print and fingerprint matching Bobby were left behind. So as they were leaving, they heard Hinman still making sounds, and Susan said Bobby went back inside and killed him. They then hotwired his Volkswagen bus and drove back to the ranch. So Hinman was a known associate of the family and had lived with him for a while, so although detectives thought the murders were similar, they still weren't sure if members of the Manson family committed the LaBianca and Tate murders because there were no connections between them. Even though they're like identical crime scenes, but... Yeah. yeah. Which I get most of the time the killer is someone that you know, so having three people that have no connections to each other is unusual but when you look at the very specific crime scenes that were left behind it's like come on come on guys we gotta we gotta put this together here they're they're pretty pretty similar yeah however they did continue investigating the backgrounds of the members of the manson family and they contacted lapd and again told them about this similar murder but lapd didn't interview Kitty until October 31st, 11 days later. 
So most of the Manson family were released a few days after the raid because there wasn't any evidence to tie them to these crimes. So several of the informants who were provided information about the Manson family prior to the arrest said they had a large arsenal of weapons, but none of them were found during these raids. And they knew that the members of the family who were not in jail would have access to a number of weapons. Um, there was a school bus on the property and a huge clothing pile was sent off for testing. The Manson family had a community clothing pile instead of having their own clothes, which, I mean, it, it makes sense with this whole family, <laughs> but, like... Yeah, they said they were just, like, a pile in the corner, and it's like, oh, it's getting ready to leave, and you just grab something out of it, and that's what you're going to wear. Like, no one owns when anything. I'm, like, at the store trying to buy a shirt, and, you know, you're just, like, digging through, and you're like, where's the large? Where's the large? Where's the large? Like... <laughs> What if, was it like that where you're just digging and digging trying to find your size or you just put on yeah. whatever was on top? Just, yeah, whatever's in there and make it fit somehow. They also had seven National Geographic magazines from 1939 to 1945, all with articles about Hitler. Just casual. Um, a few days after mm-hmm. the search and after information was provided by Kitty and Susan, ballistics testing from Spawn Ranch came back, and the 22 caliber bullets found they, they were not a match to the ones recovered at Sharon Tate's house, and there was also no blood found on the knives. So Susan Atkins, who was arrested under the name Sadie Mae Glutz, was booked for the murder of Gary Hitman. On November 2nd, Steve... Zabriskie went to the police department in Portland, Oregon, and told a detective that two people named Charlie and Clint had committed both the Tate and LaBianca murders. He said Ed Bailey and Vern Plumley, two hippies from California, had told him this. He also told them that the, those two individuals were in custody in Los Angeles for grand theft auto charges. Zabriskie said the two men also told him that they had seen this man named Charlie shoot a man with a 45 caliber automatic in Death Valley. Um, but because Zabriskie did not have any last names, the detective didn't think he was credible and didn't contact Los Angeles about this. Like, <laughs> I, I understand that... I'm sure police departments get a lot of false information that's just like someone rambling about something that isn't true and didn't happen, whatever. But I would feel like, especially in the case of these high-profile unsolved murders, you would think you would share this information. Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter how bizarre it is, right? Like, And especially because you're like, I think they're already in custody for, you know, grand theft yeah. auto charges. And it's like, okay, Charlie's kind of a common name, but Clem... That's not that common. Yeah. Even if Charlie's kind of common, you could still be like, well, let's just look because how many people are arrested named Charlie on Grand Theft Auto charges? Like, yeah, like in a specific area. It shouldn't be that difficult. That's what you get paid to do with our tax dollars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like, especially because like at this point, it's like they're just grasping at any straw trying to solve it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not like they have these leads or anything. It's like. They're just trying to figure out something. So it's like anything would help. Yeah. So Susan Atkins was known as Crazy Sadie in jail. Um, And the other inmates said she was happy and bubbly and she was always singing and dancing. And she also bragged about her previous sexual experiences. And one day, a cellmate named Virginia Graham asked Susan what she was in for. And she said, first degree murder. She's like, yeah, that's me. Uh, Crazy Sadie over here. Um, 
She said the boy she was with must have squealed on her, but that there was another girl who was there too. So Virginia asked her if she did it, and she said sure. But she said the police had the wrong story because they believed she had held the man down while Bobby stabbed him. But it was the other way around because she wasn't strong enough to hold the man down. And Virginia said she described the murder like it was an everyday activity. Um, Susan told Virginia that she she was working as a topless dancer in San Francisco when she met Charlie. She said he was the strongest man alive and had been in prison a long time, but he stayed strong. She said she followed his orders without questions, as all of the kids uh, who lived with him did. And she said he was their father, their leader, and their love. Um, He told them there was a whole civilization in the center of Earth, and the only way to get there was through a hole in Death Valley. And he was the only one who knew where it is. You know, these cult leaders are the only ones who Mm -hmm. ever knows how to get to these places. I don't know. You know, these these chosen ones, you know how they are. He said he would take them there and the chosen few would live together there. Um, And Susan told Virginia that Charles was Jesus Christ. And at one point, Manson gave everyone a buck knife and instructed them on how to use it. And he said they needed them for protection in the race war in case any black men tried to kill them. And he asked if they were willing to kill if necessary. Um, In her book, former family member Diane Lake said that the autopsy report showed that victims were killed in the manner that Charlie had instructed them. So the same way Charlie had told them, you know, if someone attacks you, kill them this way. That is how, Mm -hmm. you know, the victims were killed. So on November 5th, police were called to a home in Venice where a 22-year-old who went by the name of Zero had supposedly shot himself during Russian roulette. There were four other young adults in the home, and they said Zero had noticed a gun case and opened it up. He said there was only one bullet inside. He then spun the cylinder and shot himself in the head. So police just accepted the story, and they're like, great, thank you, um, cause of death, suicide. And But later, they would find no fingerprints on the gun, which if you shoot yourself, I don't think you can wipe your fingerprints from mm-hmm. it, or the gun case. Um, and they'd also discover the gun had been fully loaded. Which is wild that you would write it off as a suicide before even checking the weapon mm-hmm. that was used. Like, because clearly that just blows the whole theory. Like, there's, what? Yeah. And I mean, I think we even see this today still with, like, drug overdoses. Um, mm-hmm. It's just kind of people are just like, eh, don't care. Yeah. That's the thing. Sure. And it's like, but what if it's something else? Like, it mm-hmm. can be something else. Yeah. So, police also didn't know because they didn't do their jobs that the five people staying in this house were members of the manson family that had recently been released from jail so charles manson was interviewed on november 6th and asked if he knew anything about either the tate or la bianca murders he said no and the police were so unimpressed with him they didn't even write up a report on this interview so They did go through his personal belongings and tested some leather thongs used as shoelaces to compare to the thongs used to tie up Leno LaBianca's hands. Um, Tests said they were similar pieces of material, but there was no way to know for sure if it was the same type. And they interviewed nine people of the Manson family that day, and the interview with Leslie Van Houten stuck out to them. She said some of their group might be involved with the Tate and LaBianca murders, and she hinted that she may speak to them if they came back the next day, but when they did, she said she decided she didn't want to talk to them anymore. 
Which I'm also sure, like, with this Manson family, like, all these stories of how, like, out there they are, police were probably, like, just, like, what are you saying? You know? Yeah. Like, all just, these, like, girls just being like, oh, well, Charlie, Jesus Christ over here. And you're just like, <laughs> okay. We're going to go to this hole in the center of the earth. And they're like, okay, guys. Whatever yeah. you say. So the LaBianca detectives did not tell the Tate detectives that they were following this lead involving the Manson family. And also on November 6th, Susan Atkins admitted to Virginia Graham that she had killed Sharon Tate. Virginia asked her why, and Susan said they wanted to do a crime that would shock the world, that the world would have to stand up and take notice. Um, She said they picked the Cielo Drive house because they knew the owner, Terry Melcher, and they knew it was isolated. And Virginia said she was curious and asked for more details. And Susan was eager to talk about it. She said Charlie had given them instructions and that two other girls and a man went with her. They wore dark clothing and brought a change of clothes in the car. They drove up to the gate and then drove back down and parked at the bottom of the hill and walked up. Um, She said the man had cut the telephone wires, and she said a boy came out and saw them, so he was killed first, and she said Charlie had shot him four times. Virginia had originally thought this Charlie person had stayed behind, but now it seemed like he was actually a part of the group, but Virginia didn't know. There was actually two Charles in the Manson family, so there was Charles Manson, and there was Charles Tex Watson, and he a lot of times went by Tex, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can't have two Charles in the family because the Charles is Jesus Christ. So you can't have the same name. Yeah. Um, So he nicknamed him Tex because he's from Texas. So that's... Which Charles Manson, Charles Watson, like those are very similar. Yeah, they are. So Susan said they entered the house and there was a man on the couch and a girl reading a book. Susan went into the bedroom while the others stayed in the living room. She said Sharon was sitting in the bed in her bra and underwear, and Jay was sitting on the edge of the bed talking to her. Susan said they didn't know any of their names until they saw them on the news the next day. Virginia said Susan's story started jumping around, and she mentioned Sharon and Jay being strung up with nooses around their necks so they could choke uh, if they tried to move. She said Frykowski made her run for it and she stabbed him three or four times. Um, he actually reached the front door and was yelling for help when they killed him. Susan said Sharon was the last to die and laughed. She said Sharon had begged for her life and said she wanted, like, wanted to have her baby. Susan told her she didn't care and she'd better be ready because she was going to die and she didn't feel bad about it. And Susan actually tasted Sharon's blood after she killed her. They wanted to remove Sharon's baby and mutilate their bodies, but there wasn't enough time. Um, So Virginia did ask her, like, did it bother you killing Sharon because she was pregnant? And Susan said, I loved her, and in order for me to kill her, I was killing part of myself when I killed her. Which, again, is just this answer where you're like, none of that made sense. (laughs) Yeah, you're just rambling nonsense there, Susan. You said you had no idea who she was, but now you love her? (laughs) But she's also you, so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which I believe also Susan had a child, too. So I'm like, how how are you? I can't. I mean, who can get in the mind of a killer? But especially. (laughs) So when Virginia asked her how she felt about the murders, she said she was tired and elated, but at peace with herself. And this was the beginning of Helter Skelter. and And that now the world would listen. 
Susan explained Helter Skelter as Charles bringing together this group of chosen people to randomly execute people and release them from this earth. Um, she said, you have to have a lot of love in your heart to do this for people. So now she's like, now they're doing people favors, you know? like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. When they left the Tate residence, Susan realized she had forgotten her knife. So Susan's cellmate, Virginia, was transferred, but she began talking to another woman named Ronnie Howard. She told Ronnie many of the same things that she told Virginia. Um, She added that they had dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and had written pig on the door. She also asked Ronnie if she remembered the guy with a fork in his stomach and said they had written Arise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter in blood there. Ronnie asked if the same group of people killed them, and Susan said it was two girls and Charlie, and that Linda wasn't involved in this one. Susan said there were 11 unsolved murders currently, and that there would be many more. Ronnie Howard had never snitched on anyone before, not really something you want to be doing in prison. You know, you're like, Mm -hmm. I keep my head down, I just keep going. Um, But she said, like, I have to tell the police this. Like, this is, we, we have to tell this one. Um, And she was later quoted saying, I kept thinking that if I didn't say anything, these people would probably be set free. They were going to pick other houses just at random, and I just couldn't see all these innocent people being killed. It could have been my house next time, or yours, or anybody's. Um, Ronnie tried speaking to a sergeant, but they didn't take her seriously. So, the Motorcycle Club Straight Satans came up in the investigation because Charles Manson was supposedly speaking to them about a bodyguard a few months before. So, on November 12th, a Straight Satans member named Al Springer was being questioned on unrelated charges when he said that Charles Manson had told him on August 11th or 12th that he had killed five people the other night. He told one of the members they had written something in blood on a refrigerator. Springer also said Charles had mentioned killing a Black Panther and a cowboy named Shorty. So Donald Jerome Shea was a 36-year-old who worked at Spawn Ranch as a horse wrangler, and he went by Shorty. He was born in Massachusetts and later moved to California with dreams of becoming a movie star, and he got some small acting jobs here and there, but mostly worked at Spawn Ranch, where he was described as a bouncer-like figure, Um, but he and Manson really didn't get along. Manson also reportedly did not like him because he married a black woman named Magdalene Velma Fury, who lived at the ranch with them. Um, Shorty spoke to George Spawn about the Manson family and what he suspected was happening with them trying to take over. Um, Shorty told Spawn that he should put him in charge, and Charlie also believed that Shorty was the one to notify the police before they were raided on on August 16th. So Danny DiCarlo, who was a former Manson member and Straight Satan's member, told police that Shorty disappeared about 10 days after the raid. He heard rumors from the family they used a sword and four German bayonets from their gun room to cut off his head and arms, and they buried him in pieces. On November 19th, Danny DiCarlo went to the ranch with detectives and prosecutor Vincent Bugalosi. He's the one who (laughs) we still can't pronounce his name, but he wrote (laughs) Helter Skelter. Um, And George Bond gave permission for them to search the whole ranch, but they were unable to find Shorty's remains. LAPD wanted to offer Susan Atkins immunity in exchange for her testimony, but the prosecutor was obviously hesitant because Susan clearly played a large role in these murders. They're like, we can't just 
<laughs> we can't, you know, just let her off, but we like, kind of need not her testimony. She, <laughs> yeah, like, she's not saying, oh, I heard about this or I saw this. She's like, yeah, I did this and I feel no remorse for it. And her attorney's like, yeah, like, she needs immunity. Or the LPD's like, yeah, she needs immunity. What? <laughs> like, no. Um... So they did agree to offer a second-degree murder plea if she would testify to the grand jury, which I think can be a good, instead of just full immunity. (laughs) Good compromise here. They were originally a total of 19 detectives assigned to the Tate and LaBianca murders, but it was quickly cut down to only six. There were four for the LaBianca murders and two for the Tate murders. Which is odd, because if you remember, there's only two victims at the LaBianca house and five at the Tate house, and they now have twice as many detectives. So it's kind of like, what's with this split up here? You know, like, why? What is this? Yeah. Um, And if you remember, too, the LaBianca detectives are the ones that heard about the Hinman murder, and they were like, oh, yeah, this seems similar. And they were the ones who were like, oh, like, this Beatles album has some of these lyrics. Maybe this has something to do with it. And, you know, all this information that they're seeing a connection to, and the Tate detectives are like, nah, nah, it's cool. It's cool. So clearly, whatever's going on over there with that department is just not the best. So, the only evidence the state had against Manson was DiCarlo's statement that, quote, we got five piggies. So, in 1965, the California Supreme Court ruled in People v. Aranda that the prosecution cannot introduce into evidence a statement made by one defendant that implicates a co-defendant. So, none of the statements made that included a group of people could be used in a trial. So, if Susan says, we did this, they can't use that because... That's going against her co-defendants. But if she said, I did this, then they can use that. Very weird. Mm -hmm. So the state needed to hold off on charging anyone for murder because they need to make sure they have a solid case first. Because obviously, if you go through a trial and there's not enough evidence and you're acquitted, you cannot be tried again. So you got to wait and make sure you have everything first. So Manson was arraigned for arson and pleaded not guilty, and his bail was set at $25,000. But the prosecutor knew that if he was released on bail, they would have to act quickly with the murder charges because obviously none of his followers would talk if he was free because he had such power over them. Um, So several of the girls that were involved with the Manson family were interviewed separately. They were even threatened with a gas chamber, like people that they don't even know if they had anything to do with it. But they're like, oh, you know this guy? Like, we're going to put you in the gas chamber. I don't know if that's an effective way to get people to talk. Um, Especially because, like, if it's extreme fear, you're going to be like, I'll tell you whatever you want. Right? Like, it's It's not true, (laughs) but you want me to say it, I'll say it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But all of them said they didn't know anything about these murders. No one's talking. So Bobby Boussoulet went to trial for the murder of Gary Hinman, but it did end up with a hung jury, um, and the prosecutor said they would retry the case. And on that same day, Virginia spoke with a counselor who called LAPD and finally relayed what Susan said. So she's been trying to get this information to someone who will listen. Finally, they did. Mm Mm-hmm. So police's interview with 20-year-old Leslie Van Houten did prove to be helpful. So she was shocked at the news of Zero's death and said that it didn't make sense that he would play Russian roulette by himself. Um, So she's kind of like, oh no, like they're coming after people who are talking. So like, I'm kind of afraid now. And Mm -hmm. like, are they going to do something to me? Like, what's going on? So she said that there were more girls than boys at the Tate residence, which also supports what Susan had said. Um, And she implicated Patricia 
Krenwinkel and also said that someone named Linda was involved in the Tate murders. Again, backing up Susan's story because she said that Linda was not involved in LaBianca. So Mm -hmm. they're starting to get some names here versus just random family members. Um, So Leslie said that she knew of 11 murders but wouldn't talk about two of them. So she did confirm knowledge of the Tate, LaBianca, Hinman, and Shea murders. And Leslie was shocked that Susan had said that she killed the LaBiancas because according to Leslie, she wasn't in the house because Leslie herself was in the house. So now Leslie's put herself there. She also said that three girls were involved in the Tate murders, Susan, Katie, and Linda, but she said that Linda didn't kill anyone. Um, However, she refused to answer any more questions because she didn't want to end up like Zero. So... Some of the girls came from well-off families and were seeking adventure, while others were runaways or abandoned because of rough home lives. So Squeaky's parents lived in Santa Monica, and her father was an aeronautical engineer. So, you know, you never know from the outside what's going on in someone's home life, but it doesn't seem like she was unwanted or unloved. It seems like she was, let me run away and see what I can find and whatever. Um, Sandy's father was a stockbroker in San Diego, and her parents were divorced. Um, She had $6,000 in stocks when she joined the Manson family, and she sold them and gave the money to Charlie. Um, Both of those girls had started college and then dropped out, and Sandy was 25 and Squeaky was 21 the first time they were interviewed about the murders. Leslie Van Houten also came from a middle-class family and was popular and a prom queen in high school. She said her mother forced her to have an abortion at 17, which negatively affected her relationship with her family. She also briefly attended classes to become a secretary, but she dropped out because she was attracted to the hippie lifestyle. And she met Manson at a commune and joined the family at 19 years old. Patricia Krenwinkle, who also went by the name Katie, was the daughter of an insurance salesman and a stay-at-home mom, and she was living with her sister in Manhattan Beach in 1967 when she met Manson. So, Greg Jacobson provided the police with some crucial information. Um, He first met Charles Manson in May of 1968 at the home of Dennis Wilson, who was a member of the Beach Boys. So, Jacobson introduced Manson to Terry Melcher, and Melcher was the son of Doris Day and was a producer on her TV show and also involved in a record company. So, Jacobson tried to convince Melcher to record Manson, but after listening to him play, he declined. Um... So the song Ceased to Exist on the Beach Boys 1968 album was actually written by Manson, although he was not credited for it. So they did change a few things around, but like in whole, the majority of the song was written by Manson, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Um, Like we said, most of the members of the Manson family did go by an alias, um, and some of them also went by like the same alias. So you have like three girls calling themselves the same name. So it's very confusing in all these interviews trying to piece together who is who, who was involved, what their real names are. And and in the book, they talked a lot about like they were like months into investigations and people being arrested before they realized what some of their real names actually were because they just had no idea. Yeah, I noticed that too. There's a lot of like Linda and Leslie and like names that are so similar and so even like with the similar names you're like you need like a chalkboard to try and keep up with everybody (laughs) yeah in the beginning of the book um Bugliosi sir uh, he he does have a like a cast um Mm -hmm. list not cast like a, a like who they important are people yeah. yeah um so like list their names and reminds you like who they are and their aliases and everything which is super helpful because again we've left out a lot of names 
in this episode because, I mean, they mention every single witness by name and, like, all of these people. So it gets very confusing. So Jacobson told police that Tex's real last name was Watson because at this point they knew him as Montgomery, so they weren't able to find anything about him. But now that they had this information, on November 30th, they looked up records of Charles Tex Watson and found that he had been arrested on April 23rd, 1969 for drugs and was fingerprinted at that time. And they discovered that his right ring finger matched one found on the door of the Tate residence. So this is huge because they finally have a piece of physical evidence that ties members of the Manson family to the Tate murders. So detectives continued their search for Tex and learned that he was from McKinney, Texas. Um, so it was a small town, and they contacted the local sheriff, who happened to be Tex's second cousin. So they told him that he was wanted for murder, and he said that Tex was living there now and that he would pick him up himself and house him. So police interviewed Terry Melcher, who confirmed Jacobson's story, and he also added that Dennis Wilson had once given him a ride back to his house on Cielo Drive while Manson was in the car. So they now know that Manson has been outside of this house before, so they finally have some sort of connection to Manson and this home. And police are now searching for the other two individuals that they were told were involved in the Tate murders. So records showed that Patricia Kernwinkle's father had arranged for her release after she was arrested in the raid, so they asked him where she was, and he said Mobile, Alabama. So a police arrested her there on December 1st. And information had been leaked to the media, so a press conference was scheduled for 2 p.m. that day. Because obviously the public is understandably eager for information, and the prosecution is asking them to delay the press conference because they're like, we need to arrest Linda, and we don't have enough evidence for a grand jury indictment yet. So, like, can you give us a minute before you release all this information and people start running and whatever? Mm -hmm. Um And they also didn't want to have to rush the grand jury indictment without solid evidence and then not be able to go through with um, the charges. However, the public had waited long enough and the police would not delay the press conference. Um, so the press conference on December 1st was the first announcement that the same killers were responsible for both the Tate and LaBianca murders. They also announced that Tex, Patricia, and Susan had been arrested and they were searching for Linda. So the next day, on December 2nd, Linda voluntarily surrendered to the police in Concord, New Hampshire. 17-year-old Barbara Hoyt came forward and voluntarily spoke to police. Um, she had previously been associated with the family but had left, and she recalled the night that Shay was murdered and said she overheard Manson tell someone that he had committed suicide with a little help from them. She also heard Susan talking about murdering Sharon and Abigail while at the ranch, and she agreed to cooperate with police and answer any questions. So Mary Brenner then came forward and agreed to talk in exchange for immunity in the Hinman murder. So she provided details of that murder along with Shay's murder. And she told police that Tex said they had buried his body near the railroad tracks at Spawn and abandoned his car in Canoga Park. So his car would later be found where they said it was with a print matching family member Bruce Davis inside. And Shay's cowboy boots were also found in the car caked in dried blood. So Mary and some other members of the family were arrested the day before the Tate murders for credit card fraud, and Mary was in jail during both the Tate and LaBianca murders, so they knew that she wasn't personally involved with them. 
At 11 o'clock on the morning of December 1st, shortly after the news of the Manson family arrest broke, a maid at the Talgarth Hotel in London tried to open the door of a room that was occupied by an American named Joel Pugh. So the door was hard to open, like something was stuck behind it. So she reached around and felt an arm. Nope. nope she immediately nope, nope. called for the police. Yeah. <laughs> nope. 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 <laughs> Don't like that. She's like, I do not get paid enough for this. <laughs> nope. Um, so she immediately called for police who discovered the body of 29-year-old Joel. His throat had been slashed along with cuts on his wrists, and there were some odd notes and, like, comic book-type drawings written on the mirror, so police just determined that he was mentally ill and ruled his death a suicide. The manager of the hotel said that Joel checked in with a girl on October 27th, and she left after about three weeks, and they said that he appeared to be a hippie and didn't have any friends. So, over a month later, a letter was found among Sandy's things in a motel room that said, I would not want what happened to Joel to happen to me. So, this is the first time that police are like, oh, so Joel Pugh over here in London was also a former member of the Manson family Mm -hmm. and suspiciously died just hours after the news was released that the Manson family was responsible for these murders. Yeah. On December 3rd, prosecutors received the tape of Susan Atkins' interview, and she said that Manson had sent her, Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian to 10050 Cielo Drive to murder its occupants. He took Tex, Patricia, and Leslie Van Houten to the LaBianca residence the next night, and he tied them up and instructed the others to kill them. So... Susan, Clem, and Linda remained in the car during the LaBianca murders, and it was agreed that prosecutors would not seek the death penalty in exchange for Susan Atkins' testimony at the grand jury. They also agreed that they would not use her grand jury testimony against her or any other co-defendants at trial. So, like, we're just going to use this to get the indictment, but we're not going to use it in your actual trial. Patricia Krenwinkel's fingerprints were taken in Alabama, and they found one of them was a match to a bloody fingerprint left behind in Sharon Tate's bedroom. So Susan Atkins went before the grand jury as they attempted to obtain indictments against the defendants. Um, Susan was born in San Gabriel, California, and grew up in San Jose. Um, Her mom died of cancer when she was a teenager, and she ended up dropping out of high school and moving to San Francisco after multiple fights with her father. So she did have a really rocky childhood. In 1967, she was living in San Francisco with a group of other young adults. They were all pretty heavy drug users. And she said Charles Manson entered the home that she was staying in and played his guitar, and she was instantly fascinated by him. She said she asked him if she could play it, and he handed it to her. And she thought to herself, I can't play this, but she didn't say it out loud. But then Manson said out loud that she could play it. So this to Susan is just proof that he can read her mind. I'm sorry. I just imagine... um... (laughs) Like, for example, you know that How I Met Your Mother episode where Ted is, like, reliving his previous drunk night in his head and thinking yes. all this stuff happened uh-huh. and how crazy it was? And then he'd actually been butt-dialing Marshall, and it's like, no, this whole night was, like, nothing like you think it is. So I just imagine yes. her being, like, so drugged out and being like, I can't play this, but I'm not going to say it out loud. And then him just sitting there saying being like... the whole thing out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then him just being like, no, you can play it. And she's like, oh, it's Jesus. He can read my mind. Which also, could Jesus read minds? Was that part of his... I don't remember this in the Bible. I don't remember that chapter in the Bible, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> 
So Susan just knew immediately that he was what she had been looking for, and she kissed his feet. So, and it gets weirder. A few days later, he returned and asked her if she wanted to make love, and she said yes. He then asked her if she had ever made love to her father, and she said no, and he asked her if she ever wanted to, and she said yes. So he told her to picture making love to her father while they had sex. Ew. So clearly, yeah. No, like, I love my dad a lot, but ew. (laughs) Ew. Clearly, this is what Susan has been looking for her whole life, so she joined the family in their bus and traveled around with them before they settled at Spawn Ranch. I can't. I'm sorry, I can't after that last few sentences. No. Mm. And, And both of the books that I read go quite into detail about all of their sexual encounters, so if if you need to be further traumatized, feel free to read those books. Whew. So Susan testified that they stole to live and went on garbage runs to get the foods that the supermarket threw away. And she said the family also went creepy crawling, where they snuck in random houses in dark clothing and moved things around while the occupants slept. So not 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 doing anything to them yet, but they're just so they're just moving like around. And- with the La Bianca, uh, Rosemary was like. Yes. I think things have been moved around. Well, they had. They had, yep. So, on the night of August 8th, Charles told Susan, Patricia, and Linda to get dark clothes and go with Tex and do whatever Tex said. So, after they were in the car, Tex said they were going to a house on Cielo Drive because he knew the layout, and he told the girls that they were going to steal money and kill whoever was there. So when they arrived, Tex drove to the top of the hill and cut the phone lines, and they then drove back down to the bottom and parked the car and got out. So they were afraid to enter through the gate because they didn't know if there was an alarm system, so they climbed the fence instead. So they were putting their change of clothes in some bushes when they saw headlights approaching. So Tex told them to lie down and not to move, and they heard him say, halt, and another another man's voice said, please don't hurt me, I won't say anything. They then heard four gunshots, and Tex told them to come on. So when the prosecution showed her the photo of the Rambler, she said she believed that was the car, and they showed her the body of Steve Parent in the car, and she said... Yes, that is the thing I saw in the car. The the thing being this human being, Steve. The like, thing. Obviously, you're a murderer, but how do you just have no regard for, like, other human beings? This woman is pure evil. Like, yeah. Pure evil. You cannot convince me otherwise. I don't care how brainwashed you are. You don't do this. When someone tells you to, if you don't already have that inside you. Well, I was thinking about that, too, because the Manson family was quite large, but a lot Mm -hmm. of these murders were kind of committed by, like, the upper top group of people. So I'm just thinking about these people who are just trying to get drugs and be like, yeah, sure, let's have sex with each other. I don't really care. And then you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, Lord, what am I a part of? You know, because, like, yeah. And, like, the people who are, like, living there and then left and being like, oh my god, how was I a part of that? Like, what yeah. the hell? Like, oof. That's a lot about what Diane Lake's book is about, which I highly, highly recommend it. It is heartbreaking, like, talking about her whole childhood and how, like, her father gave her LSD for the first time at, like, 13 and, like, her family just, like, abandoned her and, like, sent her, like, they sent her off to live with the Manson family. They knew she was with them. Like, they met them. They hung out with them. Like, they were in their own hippie commune, but the hippie commune that her parents lived in kicked her out because she was a teenage girl. So, they're like, we have children and then we have adults, but, like, everyone's having sex, and we can't have you having sex with the adults because then we'll get in trouble. So, like, you just can't be here. 
and like just and her parents were like okay well they said you have to go so you have to go and like that's how she ended up living with the manson family yeah it's bizarre so like i understand how some of these people ended up in this family wanting this love and affection and this community and then you're like oh they murdered a bunch of people that's not what i was here for hold up yeah (laughs) because like so many um like can be I mean, there are the people who do have, you know, rich parents who are just kind of running away. Mm -hmm. But there's also people who have, like, really rocky childhoods and they find a family who loves them. And you're kind of getting drugged out of your mind all the time. And so, and then just being like, wait a minute. I thought we were going to a hole in Death Valley. I didn't think (laughs) we were murdering people. Like, Yeah. And like we mentioned in last week's episode, like, Manson was intentionally using these manipulation tactics to recruit and keep these women in his group. So Mm -hmm. you're a 16-year-old girl who's had this rocky childhood, who doesn't have any solid connections with people, and then here's this man who's intentionally, like, making you feel like the most loved person and telling you how wonderful you are and amazing, and his group needs you, and they need you and part of the family. And, of course, you're going to join that. I mean, you've never been needed like that before, you know? And that's the thing is we're all humans. We all want to be loved and, mm-hmm. like, feel like we're a part of something, like, bigger than ourselves or, like, you know, contributing to some group. Like, there's a reason that humans have, like, families and friend groups. Like, there's a reason, like, we don't do well in, like, isolation. And it's, like, so if you don't have any of that, you're, like, yeah, I'm going to need it and I'm going to go to this family. And I totally get it. Like, I totally get how people mm-hmm. – I, I definitely think that people with the, with the murders, you're – different we're not talking about them we're talking about the other the lower people who had no idea probably what was going on (laughs) (laughs) yeah so back to the tate residence um tex entered the home through a window and then let susan and patricia in the front door and linda did stay outside so tex held a gun on Wojtek frykowski and frykowski said who are you and what are you doing here and tex said i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's business Tex then told Susan to find out how many people were in the house. And she went around the house and told him there were three people. So he ordered her to tie up Frykowski and then get the others. So she held a knife on them and guided them into the living room. And Tex ordered them all on their stomachs. So when J.C. Ring said that Sharon was pregnant and asked if she could sit, Tex shot him. Tex then asked if they had any money and Abigail gave Susan $72, but she did decline her credit cards when she offered them. And Tex had Susan get a towel and tie Frykowski's hands. He then tied up Sharon and Abigail and threw the rope over the beam in the ceiling so that everyone had to stand to prevent being choked. Tex said they were all going to die and ordered Susan to kill Frykowski. So Frykowski did manage to get loose and they struggled, which resulted in Susan stabbing him around four or five times. He then ran out the front door asking for help. um, And Susan could not recall when he was shot. Um, But she said Tex got to the door and hit him over the head with the gun and also began stabbing him. At this point, Abigail got loose from the ropes and was fighting with Patricia. So Susan said it was just very chaotic. There was a lot of confusion. She said Sharon was begging for her life and that of her unborn baby. And at the end, Abigail stopped fighting and said, I give up, take me. And Tex stabbed her once in the stomach and she fell. Um, Susan had told Ronnie Howard that she had stabbed Sharon until she stopped screaming, but at the grand jury, she testified that she held her arms back while Tex stabbed her. She also only mentioned Sharon being stabbed once, but the autopsy showed that she had been stabbed 16 times. Susan said the next thing she remembered was being outside with Tex and Patricia, and they saw Abigail crawling across the lawn. 
So Tex went to her and Susan said he stabbed her three or four, I don't know how many times. She was stabbed 28 times, actually. Mm-hmm. And Tex told Susan to go back and write something in blood on the wall, something that would shock the world. So she dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and she wrote pig on the door, thinking about the words political piggy that had been written at the Hinman murder. She then tossed the towel over her head and it landed on Jay's head, which is also where the rumors came from that there was like a hood over his head and it was like she just threw a towel and that's where it landed. Mm -hmm. Like there was no significance to it. She then testified that she thought about cutting Sharon open and taking her baby because she knew there was still a living being in there, but she didn't have the courage to do it. So it's almost like she's like, yeah, I wanted to take the baby because the baby's alive. And it's like, well, these other five people were alive until you murdered them. Yeah. So Susan, Tex, and Patricia then grabbed their spare clothes from the bushes and got back in their car. So Linda was in the car at this point as well, and they changed clothes in the car and threw out their bloody clothes and weapons at different points along the road. And Susan realized that she had left her knife, but Tex didn't want to go back. Um, They did stop and use a garden hose to wash the blood off, and a man came out of the house and told them to leave. Um, Tex apologized and said that they just wanted a drink of water and didn't realize anyone was home. The man tried to grab Tex's keys, but the group quickly got back in the car and left. They arrived back at Spawn Ranch around 2 a.m., and Manson asked them what they were doing home so early. So. Hmm. Yeah. So the next night, Manson told Susan to grab a change of clothes again, and he said they were going to do the same thing as last night, but at two different houses. So Susan, Tex, Patricia, and Linda went again, this time joined by Manson, Clem, and Leslie. Um, Manson had a gun, but Susan didn't notice any knives. Um, They stopped at one house, and Manson went around and looked in the windows, but he said he didn't want to do that house because he saw pictures of children on the wall. But later, he would say they might have to kill children, too. So here's again where these lines keep getting blurred of, like, mm-hmm. but Sharon was pregnant, but there's children, yeah. but, but, like, it's just a mess. Um, mm-hmm. They drove around and finally arrived at another house, and only Manson went inside at first. So a while later, he came out and said he had tied up the couple, and they were calm, and he instructed Tex, Patricia, and Leslie to go in the house. Manson said the group last night had panicked when they were told they were going to be killed, so he had reassured this couple like they're going to be fine. Um, And he told them to paint a picture more gruesome than anybody had ever seen, and they should hitchhike a ride back to the ranch when they were finished. Manson brought Rosemary LaBianca's wallet with him, and they put it in a gas station bathroom, hoping someone would use the credit cards and be suspected of the murders. The wallet wasn't found until four months after the murders, and it had been in the back of a toilet so they weren't able to get any physical evidence but it does give more weight to susan's testimony susan testified the next morning patricia told her tex had killed the husband in the living room while she and leslie killed the wife in the bedroom patricia said they wrote death to pigs arise and helter skelter in blood patricia then struck the fork in the man's stomach and susan believed patricia was the one that carved war into his skin too They then took a shower and made themselves something to eat in the kitchen, and they dumped their clothing about a mile away and hitched a ride back to the ranch where they arrived at about dawn. So Sharon Tate's housekeeper, Winfred Chapman, testified that she had washed the front door of the home shortly before noon the day they were killed. We mentioned this in part one, how it would kind of come back up 
here it is again. Um, this was important because Tex left a fingerprint on that door. So he had to have been in the home sometime after Mrs. Chapman left at 4 p.m. So the grand jury returned indictments of two counts murder and one count conspiracy to murder to commit murder for Leslie and seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder against Charles, Tex, Patricia, Linda, and Susan. So the prosecutors made sure to schedule arraignments on different days because they were afraid Susan would run into Manson and he would persuade her like not to testify. Um, and Susan's father announced that he didn't believe that Susan was really under Manson's spell and that she was just kind of trying to talk her way out of it. So even her dad's like, nah, I think this is her. <laughs> I think yeah, it's just, just her. Just her. <laughs> um, he blamed the drugs and said he's been trying to have her locked up for years after various offenses, but the courts were too lenient with her. Then on December 14th, the Los Angeles Times published Susan's account of the murders. They had approached her attorney and asked if she was interested in selling her story. Um, they believed it was only to be released in Europe, but somehow it was leaked to the Los Angeles Times. So this is a huge problem with the trial, because <laughs> yes. how are you going to find an impartial jury now mm -hmm. that you've read her whole account of these gruesome, gruesome murders? in your newspaper <laughs> yeah like clearly you are coming in with a bias here <laughs> mm -hmm. so susan began writing letters to friends which were copied and sent to the D's da's office because these admissions could be used against her in the trial um she also had a letter smuggled to ronnie howard in prison but ronnie turned the letter over to her attorney and he gave it to the da the letter continued confessing to the crimes and saying they were killing people to release them from her physical body. She also said she initially wanted to slit Ronnie's throat when she realized that she was the informant, but then realized that she herself was actually the informant. <laughs> yeah, like you, you ran your mouth too much, Susan. This, yeah. this was you. You told two different people, too. Like, yeah. you're just telling anyone who will listen at this point. Exactly. So, a TV camera crew from Channel 7, KABC-TV, tried to recreate the scenario Susan described. So, they left the house on Cielo Drive and drove down Benedict Canyon, as Susan said the group had done. Um, they changed clothes in the car, which took them about six minutes, and at the place where they could pull over easily, they did so. There was a mountain on one side and a ravine on the other, just as Susan had described. So, they looked down the embankment, and they spotted what appeared to be clothing. So, they contacted LAPD, <laughs> who recovered two pairs of blue jeans, two black t-shirts, a dark velvet turtleneck, and a white t-shirt covered in what appeared to be blood. And forensic testing would later confirm that it was blood that matched the types of the Tate victims. So, the prosecution is furious that LAPD hadn't found this clothing before this point, because this TV crew, who are not mm -hmm. investigators, were like, we just followed her story and found it in exactly two hours like <laughs> they're like we just went right down where she said they did and like we changed clothes to see how long it would take and then we tossed them and right there it was that was it <laughs> we just did your job for you like yeah so after the gun recovered by the weiss boy was finally retrieved and tested in mid-december it was determined to be a match to the bullet that hit sebring Again, this weapon that they had in their possession for three months while they were sending flyers out to people trying to this mm -hmm. weapon yeah yeah so we should just name this charles manson part two the lapd is still shit <laughs> 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 um 
So Rudolph Weber contacted police and said he was the man that chased away a group of people using his garden hose the night of the Tate murders. He provided a general description that did match the family Manson family members, but he wasn't able to pick them out of a lineup because he was like, it was really dark when I saw them, and I, you don't really think much of it. You're just like, hey, can you just go to quit using my garden hose? Like, Yeah. <laughs> Like, I don't think I'm going to have to identify you later. Like, you were just trespassing. (laughs) Yeah, you never think, like, these trespassers who just left when you asked are the ones who just committed a gruesome murder. Yeah. However, he was able to accurately describe the car they were driving, including the license plate number that he memorized. And he said he had to remember numbers for work, so he was just kind of good at that sort of thing. Um, And the license plate matched the car that Susan said was borrowed from John Swartz, the former ranch hand at Spawn Ranch. LAPD had previously threatened Manson family member Diane Lake with the gas chamber, but the DA investigator was kind to her and she opened up to them, um, which I think happens a lot. You know, if you're just maybe nice to people, they might be more forthcoming than just trying to scare them. Uh Crazy how that works. And also, (laughs) Diane was 16 at this time, so like a literal child. And I don't think I put it in the notes because... There was so much stuff I had to cut stuff out. Um, But this DA investigator, they actually fostered her throughout the trial. So, like, she lived with him and his family. Yeah. So, Diane admitted that Tex told her he'd stab Sharon because Charlie had ordered the killings. And she said Leslie had brought back coins, a purse, and credit cards the next day. The DA's office wondered if this could have been Leno's missing coin collection, and Diane said Leslie had told her that she stabbed someone that was already dead near Griffith Park. Um, So this was likely to be the LaBianca house. Um, She also said someone had written in blood on the refrigerator and that she'd wiped everything clean of prints. So Leslie said they took a carton of chocolate milk with them and described the boat that had been outside the house. She also said she wasn't involved with Tate murders. Investigators also found the LaBiancas had a neighbor named Harold that Manson had partied with, and Manson had been to his house several times, so they weren't sure if he went to the wrong house that night and actually intended to kill Harold, or if he was just, like, aware of the area because of his connection to Harold. Mm-hmm. Acting as his own attorney, Manson was entitled to copies of all of the prosecution's material witnesses, except the addresses and phone numbers of witnesses and pictures of the crime scenes. So a German magazine had offered $100,000 for photos of the crime scene. So obviously the DA's office wanted to make sure they were not released to anyone because they're like, we can't have these Mm -mm. images just out here. And no, just bad practice to be like, (laughs) I'll pay $100,000 for crime scene photos. Right? Like, Like, gross. So Manson somehow became like a counterculture hero. He gave interviews from prison to the underground press as he had more privileges than usual due to serving as his own attorney. And free Manson buttons were created along with t-shirts with his face on it. And many protested for the release of the Manson family. We see this every time with Serial. We saw it with Ted Bundy. We see it with just... Mm-hmm. It's just disgusting. Yeah. So it wasn't until February that Terry Melcher said Manson had knocked on the door of the guest house at Cielo Drive in March of 1969 and spoke with the owner, Rudy Altobelli, about his music. So this was pretty huge because this indicated that Manson had been in the main house and had seen the layout prior to the murders. 
So Rudy was a business manager and Manson was speaking to him about producing his music. So police interviewed Rudy and he said Manson had knocked on his door and asked for Terry Melcher. Um, But Melcher had moved to Malibu and Rudy told him, told him this. Um, So Manson asked for his new address, but Rudy wouldn't give it to him. Um, So Rudy was irritated that Manson had come through the main house to speak with him and said he didn't want his like tenants disturbed. He was like, you can't just like trace through this house that you have no right to be in. Um, So in the house that night was Sharon, Abigail, Wojtek, and Jay. Rudy said Sharon's friend and photographer Shiroka Hatami was also there that night. Um, Hatami was then interviewed and said he did send a man to the guest house at some point that spring. Um, He couldn't remember when, but he said it was the night before Sharon left for Europe. So Rudy had also mentioned that he was packing for his trip to Europe with Sharon the night Manson knocked on his door because they were leaving the next day. So they're kind of both lining up on probably around what Mm -hmm. time or date this was. Yeah. Uh, Hatami did not know that this man was Manson, but he provided a physical description and that did match Manson. Um, He said he was irritated with this man because he didn't know who he was and he was very protective of Sharon. Um, So he pointed him in the direction of the guest house and the prosecutor speculated that Manson would have felt rejected and this could have been a possible motive for the murders as him being like, how dare you, you know, tell me to leave, like, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And this also indicated that Manson had seen four of the five victims prior to the nights of the murders. So, the DA's investigative team spoke to many current and former Manson family members before the trial. Um, These members revealed a lot about Manson, the family, and the power he had over them. Manson would use sex to initiate new members, and he believed they would have to get rid of all inhibitions. So, he forced them to do specific acts that they were, like, opposed to doing. And at one point, a 13-year-old girl was sodomized in front of everyone, and Manson also performed oral sex on a young boy. He believed everyone should have sex with all sexes, especially if they did not want to, which just so you guys know, that is rape. That is very Mm -hmm. much rape. That is the word for that. Yes. So Manson also said that women had two purposes, to serve men and to give birth to children. Boo, tomatoes, 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 tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Manson also interpreted the chapter of Revelations in the Bible to mean that the four angels were the Beatles. So he saw them as leaders, spokesmen, and prophets, and believed they issued fire and brimstone. Um, He found what he believed to be many more specific references to them and would share these beliefs with the other family members or anyone else that came in contact with. Um, He believed the Beatles were speaking directly to the family through their music. I'm leaving that in because that was, <laughs> that was kind of funny. Uh, specifically, the White Album. Whew. So, getting sweaty again. Just bringing it back from part one, I'm getting sweaty again. It's We are not used to these very long episodes, guys. We are struggling. Struggling. Um, it's pretty early. All right. Um, yeah. So, Manson worked on making his own album that would accompany the White Album, and he believed that Terry Melcher would be the one to produce it. So, the family's most played songs were the white, from the White Album were Blackbird, Piggies, Revolution 1, Revolution 9, and Helter Skelter. Manson said that Revolution 9 was the Beatles' way of saying what would happen at the end of the race war. 
If you haven't heard this song, it's kind of just a chaotic mashup of various instrumental sound bites and sound effects such as screaming and gunshots, with number nine being repeated over and over. So, six months before the Tate and LaBianca murders, Manson described the murders as they would happen in detail, including writing in victims' blood. So the witnesses who shared this information also gave the prosecution what they would eventually believe was the motive behind these murders. Manson frequently spoke about Helter Skelter. He believed this would be a race war where black people finally rose up against white people. He said the black man's purpose was to serve the white man and that they had been on bottom long enough and would soon take over power. He planned the murders with the idea that other white people would think that the black people committed these murders and it would ignite a race war. So he's claiming that, like, black people are going to start attacking white people, but him as a white man is attacking white people (laughs) instead to just initiate Mm -hmm. it. So, yeah. You know that uh, that white on white crime you hear so much about in the media. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he said... White people would start killing black people and black people would turn white people against each other so that they would start killing other black people as well. So, I mean, I don't know how you're just thinking that you just know exactly what's going to happen, but you do you. Because <laughs> you got too much time on your hand and too many drugs. Yeah. And so you're just... Like, you know when you're... Maybe maybe get a job, Manson. Maybe. <laughs> it's like, you know when you're in the shower and you think about like a possible conversation and you're like, this is going to happen and I'm going to say this and then he's going to say that. This is like that times 30. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then you make that your life's purpose and then you tell everyone you know about it. Yeah. And then you convince yeah, everyone else. That's a good analogy. <laughs> so... <laughs> He said eventually the white race would be wiped out and only black people would be left. Before this happened, Manson would take his family into the hole in Death Valley that only he had access to, and they would hide out there until the race war was over. His theory was that once all white people were gone, black people would soon realize they can't survive without white people telling them what to do. Um, okay. They're human beings. They have brains. Um, I think they... Don't need someone to tell them what to do, but all right. Um, They would then seek out Manson's group and tell them they can come out because the race war is over. And Manson would then emerge as Jesus Christ and leader of the world and would make the entire black race his slave so that white race would be on top again. The racism. The racism. I, it, mm. And the prosecutors heard this same story from multiple current and former members of the Manson family. So, I, no. No, like, again, you're a part of a family and drugs, but, like, you really believe this? You you believe this. (laughs) And in Diane Lake's book, she does mention that, like, this came later in her time with the family. Mm -hmm. So she's like... You know, she lived with them for, like, a year, and it was like, oh, like, all the sex stuff was happening, and he was abusing them, and those sorts of things. So, like, it wasn't, like, this perfect, happy place, but she's like, this wasn't the Charles that I knew. Then, like, you know, later and later, and she said that he, like, brought it up slowly. It wasn't, like, Mm -hmm. one day he just started, like, opening his Bible and playing the Beatles' White Album and doing these preachings. It was like, oh, he started listening to the album a lot, and he's like, oh, like... I like this, and I'm. I think I'm hearing some themes here, and and like it slowly emerged into like this yeah, full fledged like, like crazy person. And yeah. I think too. I mean, I guess if you're gonna get p- other people in the family to believe you, you can't just all at once say it. You know, you kind of yeah. have to be like, 
there might be a race war. Um, we might have to go to a hole. And then, like, you're just escalating and you're just like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You know, it kind of it makes you think, think of Fox News here. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you just You just slowly throw out yeah. these concepts and then like before you know it you're just brainwashed <laughs> before you know you it know? you're queuing off <laughs> like <laughs> exactly exactly Ooh-wee. oh jesus <laughs> so so the prosecution also interviewed dennis wilson from the beach boys so they found out that manson had asked to stay with him for a while and when he arrived he brought over a dozen people with him um it's like wait a minute i said you I got one bedroom. Yeah. Hold on. Um, and Wilson said it was very expensive, like staying between paying for their regular living expenses, Clem crashing his car, and many pen- penicillin shots because they all just constantly had gonorrhea. Just yeah. constant gonorrhea. <laughs> like, Which happens when you just have sex with everyone yeah. with no protection. Yeah. And I think also Dennis Wilson had to just like abandon his house and be like, I'm just not going to pay the rent anymore because I can't get rid of you. Like, (laughs) yeah, he legit just like left and like Manson stole like his um, like gold records and stuff that like he later used to like barter for like a ranch and, you know, whatever. But yeah, like eventually he's like, I don't know what else to do. I'm I'm just going to leave. Yeah, I'm just going to stop paying the rent and it's going to look bad on my credit for a while, but I'm I'm in the Beach Boys, so it's fine. (laughs) I can't I can't pay for any more penicillin for all this gonorrhea. I can't keep getting gonorrhea. (laughs) (laughs) just imagining that little sound clip taken out of context (laughs) kevin's gonna be like what (laughs) what he's listening to you editing i'm sorry what courtney (laughs) you did what now (laughs) so in february susan decided she no longer wanted to testify and this did void her agreement with the da's office so death penalty is now back on the table if she is found guilty so police now spoke with linda Kasabin, as she had been cooperative with them, and they hoped that she would agree to testify. Um, because she had not actually murdered anyone, Linda was given full immunity in exchange for her testimony. And at 20 years old, Linda had been married twice and had one child and was eight months pregnant with her second child. She had previously separated from her husband, and that's when she traveled west, staying with various groups until she found the Manson family. She only stayed with them about six weeks, but she was the only member with a valid driver's license, so the prosecutors guessed that's why she was one of the few members, like, Manson chose to go along for these murders. It's like, oh, we finally have a driver. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Linda said her daughter was separated from her when she arrived at the ranch, and they separated mothers and children so the mothers, like, wouldn't impose their own ego on the innocent children. Mm. Or just another control tactic, because they have your kid. Yeah. Yeah. So Linda told the DA's office that when they arrived at the house on Cielo Drive, Tex told her, to, told her to look for an opening to the house. She went around back and she did see an open window where the painter had removed the screens to paint the nursery, but she didn't want to participate in these murders. So she told Tex she didn't see anything. Um, he then cut a screen to gain entry to the house. So Linda saw Wojtek and Abigail come outside. Um, where they were murdered by Tex. She said she wanted to leave and get help, but her daughter was back at the ranch and she didn't know where she was or how to get there. And she was afraid something would happen to her daughter if she left and went to the police. So it's like, I'm stuck because I want to leave, but Mm -hmm. I have to protect my daughter too. Yeah. 
Linda said she wasn't at the LaBianca murders, but shared some of the same information that they heard from the other family members. She also said that the same night of the LaBianca murders, Manson ordered the hit of another man. This was a man that Linda had previously slept with, and he ordered her to get into his apartment and he would send the others in, but she purposely went to the wrong apartment and said it wasn't him. Uh, Linda did end up leaving the ranch two days after this. She ended up leaving her daughter at the ranch to go find her husband, but when she found her husband, he was with another woman, so she left and went back to the ranch. She found out that her daughter, Tanya, had been taken into foster care during the August 16th raid, so she went to court and was able to get her back, and she went uh, to her husband in New Mexico, but he was still with the other girl. She then hitchhiked to Florida to stay with her dad, then to New Hampshire to stay with her mom. As previously mentioned, she did turn herself in when she saw the press conference and heard they were looking for her. She said she didn't tell anyone about the murders after she got her daughter back because she was afraid the family would come kill them both. I mean, we are seeing people who talk show up dead, you know. Mm -hmm. I do believe her that she's kind of like, I'm just trying to lay low here. Oh, yeah. And people did criticize her because they were like, you wouldn't leave the night of the murders and leave your daughter at the ranch. But like you left her there with these murderers two days later. But she was like, I didn't think they were going to harm her as long as I wasn't doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like she's like, oh, I'm just going to see my husband and then I'm coming back. Like they're not going to harm her. But if like I disappeared the night of the murders, they know I'm going to tell someone then they are. So like people criticize that decision because they're like, you still left her alone. But she's like. No, like, she was a part of their family, too. Like, they weren't going to harm this innocent child, you know? So, the prosecutors received some information that Manson's defense team was going to claim that he was out of state on the days of the murders and therefore couldn't have ordered them. However, the DA's office found that he had received a ticket for driving without a license outside of San Diego the day before the the murders. So, this proved that he was nearby. And California is a pretty big state. Like, it's... It's going to take you a while to get places. (laughs) Like, Yeah. So Mary Brenner and Sandra Good were also arrested the day of the murders for using a stolen credit card. And they were driving the same car Charlie was in when he got the ticket. So clearly he had driven the car back to Spawn Ranch. Mm -hmm. Several witnesses had told the DA's office and police that Manson had once killed a black panther and police were shocked when Bernard Crow came forward. He said Manson had shot him after an argument and asked... He asked his friends to pretend that he was dead. He spent a while in the hospital in critical condition and still had the bullet inside him. The DA's office asked if he was willing to have the bullet removed to be compared to those from the murders, but there were serious health risks involved and he declined. And members of the family later said they were in need of money and decided they would pose as like drug dealers. And their plan was to take Crow's money but not give him any drugs. They argued Manson shot him three times, but the gun jammed the first two times, and he did eventually shoot him in the chest. Then in March, Bobby Boussoulet was retried and found guilty and sentenced to death um, for the murder of Gary Hinman, and it wasn't until April that testing was done and bullet casings found at Spawn Ranch did match those from the Tate murder weapon. So they originally found some that did not match, but they later found others that did. Mm Mm-hmm. So, against the judge's and several lawyers' recommendations, Manson wished to represent himself, and the judge finally granted it. Um, He did, however, have multiple court-appointed attorneys 
assisting him at different points. Um, He often fired them and requested new attorneys. He was constantly disruptive in court, filing all kinds of various motions. He would give long monologues and would do things like put his arms out and say, kill me now, when they denied one of his motions. And then the girls on trial would repeat his behavior, just... A huge clusterfuck. Um, mm-hmm. In the book, there's like a whole chapter dedicated to like every single hiring and firing of an attorney and every motion and so on and so forth. But, you know, he's a piece of shit. We don't need to get into all that. Yeah. So Manson, Leslie, Linda, Patricia, and Susan would be tried separately from Tex. So Tex was still in jail in Texas, and his lawyer was fighting for extradition. So in his Texas jail cell, he was allowed a record player, and his mom cooked his vegetarian meals that were delivered to him. Like, he's just living the life there in McKinney, (laughs) Texas. Um, Eventually, Tex would go on a hunger strike and become withdrawn and would have multiple psychiatric evaluations to determine if he was mentally ill or if he was just faking it to fight extradition. Spoiler alert, he's just faking it. Mm -hmm. So the trial for Manson, Susan, Leslie, and Patricia started on June 15th, 1970. Again, if you want a very, very detailed recap of the entire trial, it is in the Helter Skelter book. It is amazing. Highly recommend it, but we're not going to go through all the details. Yeah, um, we can't. We made this two-part, guys. We can't. No. That'd no. be seven parts. <laughs> yes. Um, and we already covered, like, all the highlights previously, um, so it kind of recaps everything, which is also nice reading the book because with there being so much information, it's easy to forget things along the way. So the fact mm-hmm. that they brought it up during interviews and then brought it up in the trial section makes it easier to kind of keep up with everything. Yeah. So the jury was told that they could be sequestered for up to six months. And the night before the trial started, Manson carved an X in his forehead. So that's how he showed up to court the first day. He said he had X'd himself, that they created the monster because they made fun of him. And then just general nonsense ramblings about Jesus Christ. His followers also passed out flyers outside the courthouse saying Manson was innocent and telling people all about their beliefs. And the three girls on trial also burned exes into their foreheads over the weekend. And later, other members of the family would do this as part of an initiation ritual. Because, another spoiler, the family continued long after Manson was in jail. Yeah. So, so during the trial, President Nixon made a statement about a man who was guilty of eight murders receiving media attention and being called a hero. So this obviously blew up because defendants are considered innocent until proven guilty. And here you have the president of the United States calling you guilty during your trial. I bet that's the worst thing he did as president, huh? <laughs> Spoiler alert, if you're not American, um, he was impeached. Yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, just look he, up Watergate. Just look it up. <laughs> oh, boy. Maybe we should do an episode on that. <laughs> oh, we should. Okay, no. but you know what? I'm going to... We'll, we'll get to that, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, something a little different from our, our usual forte here. So, Nixon then had to make another statement saying that he was not taking away Manson's rights and that this man had allegedly committed these crimes. So the jury security was even stronger after this because they wanted to make sure that this statement did not make it to the jury because it would be damning to the defendants. However, Manson was happy to have this attention. And against the judge's explicit orders, one of the defense attorneys for some reason brought a newspaper into court. So during the trial, Manson grabbed the LA Times and showed it to the jury with the headline saying that Nixon had said Manson was guilty. So... 
The jury was extensively questioned and they said that they weren't influenced by this. So the mistrial petitions were denied because the judge is like, you can't try to cause your own mistrial by telling the jury information that is damning against you. Like you should want this information not to reach the jury. But he's like, oh, let me tell the jury about it and then I'll file for a mistrial. And the judge is like, no, you moron. That's not how this works. (laughs) No. So Randy Starr was a ranch hand at Spawn Ranch and was set to be a witness for the state. Um, He was going to testify that he had given Manson the gun that was used for the Tate murders, and he would also match the rope that was used to one in Manson's possession. However, Randy died of a sudden ear infection during the trial. Um, New fear unlocked. (laughs) I'm a little suspicious here. Like, apparently an autopsy was done, but I'm a little suspicious. That's too, too neat there. Yeah. An ear infection. Yeah, right? So Linda Kasabian spent a total of 17 days on the stand. 17 full days of testifying. So like eight Uh hours a day of answering questions and repeating and gosh. Um, So 17 days before she was granted immunity and all the charges against her were dropped and she did go back home to New Hampshire. Um, The medical examiner testified that the knives found in the LaBianca's home did not explain all of their wounds, so the killers would have had to have brought some of their own knives with them, and this was important for proving first-degree premeditated murder. So you can't claim that it was a robbery gone wrong and you used what was there. Mm -hmm. In September, former family member and witness for the prosecution, Barbara Hoyt, was contacted by family members and offered a trip to Hawaii if she agreed not to testify. So she agreed, and she traveled to Hawaii with several family members. And while she was there, Ruth Ann Morehouse gave Barbara a hamburger. And when she finished eating it, Ruth Ann said, it would be crazy if someone laced the hamburger with 10 LSD tabs. Which is a lot. Yeah. So Barbara began panicking and started running down the street. Um, She did collapse, and someone actually found her and took her to the emergency room. So she was okay, but, like, wow. Yeah. So Tex finally returned to California on September 11th after losing his last extradition attempt. So prosecutor Bugliosi, that I misspelled his name in this note again. Um, (laughs) So he frequently received threatening phone calls and Manson told a bailiff if he was convicted, he was going to have the judge killed. So both the judge and prosecutor received additional security after that, and the prosecutor even set up walkie-talkies in his home to communicate with the police in case someone cut their phone line. So as happened in the Tate murders, they're, like, anticipating this, so he had walkie-talkies with the police station. I mean, that is so scary because you do have other family members that you couldn't arrest because it's like, what will we arrest them on? It's like... Exactly. You know what they're capable of. And And there's so many of them. It's not like you can just, like, have surveillance on, like, two Mm -hmm. people. Like, there's so many people who are, like, infatuated with Manson. So on September 26th, a wildfire burned Spawn Ranch to the ground. And the Manson girls stood outside and cheered that Helter Skelter was coming down. On October 5th, Manson leapt over the defense table with a pencil and lunged toward the judge. So Manson did testify, but it was without the jury present. So his statements weren't used in deciding his conviction. Kind of hard to understand, but it seemed like they wanted him to testify with the attorneys and the judge to see if his testimony would be relevant before they actually Mm -hmm. had him testify in front of the jury. But And you really don't want a mistrial in this, so they're like, let's vet this before. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, obviously they ended up not using it. Um, but he said that he took in the children whose parents dumped them and that he didn't make them killers. Their parents and everyone else did. And okay. he spent a long time giving himself a pity party, saying that no one wanted him his whole life. And now he's in prison and people want to kill him. Yep. That's what happened. Okay. Poor baby. Yeah. So, on November 30th, Leslie's attorney, Ronald Hughes, failed to show up. So, Ronald was, like, an ex-hippie kind. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. current hippie. I don't know. He had associations with Manson before this. So, it was, like, uh, it it took a while for him to be approved as her attorney anyway to make sure there was no conflict of interest. Um, But he did disappear on November 30th. And no one could get a hold of him. So, after a short recess, the judge ordered that the proceedings would continue. On December 18th, Clem, whose real name was Steve Grogan, Lynette Squeaky from Ruth Ann Morehouse, Catherine Scher, and Dennis Rice were all indicted on charges of conspiracy to prevent and dissuade a witness from attending trial. That was for the LSD-laced hamburger. At one point, Manson got some string and was able to smuggle in marijuana and a hacksaw blade from someone outside, but the items were found and they did believe that this was an escape attempt. And Manson family members also stole a case of hand grenades from Camp Pendleton Marine Corps base that was believed to be another escape attempt. The jurors were taken on trips to places like the San Diego Zoo, Disneyland, and the movie studios. Um, The trial lasted for seven months, and they had been sequestered the entire time, which was the longest in U.S. history at that time. Um, That record would be broken by the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995. Um, But they had the jury sequestered this whole time so they're like okay like we'll take you on these like supervised trips to like get you out but we're here to make sure that you don't get any mm-hmm. information um and their family member like a s- small select number of family members were allowed to visit them on the weekend so they were able to have some contact with their family that's good at least i couldn't imagine like being sequestered and just being like yeah. imagine how much i would miss in the group chat right <laughs> like there would be a- I'd come back and there'd probably be like four more babies somehow. <laughs> We'd have to put together a whole PowerPoint to get you all caught up. <laughs> I know. Here's what you missed. <laughs> so during the jury deliberation, they asked to listen to the Beatles' White Album and to visit the Tate and LaBianca houses. Um, so the judge did allow the first request but denied the second. And they did deliberate for nine days before returning with guilty on all counts for all defendants. So during the penalty phase, the defense tried to say that these were copycat killings to get Bobby off from the Hinman charge. So they claimed that they weren't responsible for any of them, but Bobby had been wrongfully accused, so therefore they committed similar murders to make the police believe that the first one couldn't have been Bobby. So they're still implicating themselves, but they're trying to take Manson out of it. So these girls are basically Mm -hmm. just like throwing themselves... I don't know the word. Like in front of the bullet. Yeah, there we go. I had a phrase there that wasn't coming to my brain. (laughs) They also now claimed, again, this is post-conviction penalty phase. They are claiming that Linda Kasabian is the one who ordered these murders. So they're just talking out their ass. Like, there's no evidence of this. So because certain statements were introduced by the defense during the penalty phase, Susan's grand jury testimony was now allowed back in. So all of this that she spewed was now allowed back in because the defense introduced some of these items. So the judge did end the jury sequester after eight months when all information had been shared during the penalty phase and there was really nothing else that they could discover. So they're like, okay, like you don't have to be sequestered anymore. Um, All four defendants also shaved their heads during this time to make some sort of statement. 
as well as did some of the family members who were protesting outside the courthouse. On March 29th, after deliberating for 10 hours, the jury sentenced all four defendants to death. And upon hearing the verdict, Patricia said, you have just judged yourselves. Susan said, better lock your doors and watch your own kids. And Leslie said, your whole system is a game. You blind, stupid people, your children will turn against you. All right, then. Yeah. Also in March, the body of Leslie's attorney, Ronald Hughes, was found in Sesp Creek, Um, The cause of death and manner of death were undetermined due to the state of decomposition, but it is believed that he was murdered by members of the Manson family. I mean, how bizarre would some other situation Mm -hmm. be here? (laughs) So Squeaky Fromm, Clem, Catherine Scher, and Dennis Rice were sentenced to 90 days in jail for misdemeanor conspiracy to dissuade a witness from testifying. And Ruth Ann Morehouse, who is the one who actually gave the hamburger to Barbara, didn't show up to sentencing. So they just didn't think it was worth extraditing her from Nevada. So she just got away with that. Well, then. Yeah. So Tex Watson finally went to trial in August of 1971. And he testified that Manson gave him a knife and gun and told him to go to the house where Terry Melcher used to live and kill everyone in the house as gruesome as he could. He said Manson also said something about movie stars living there. So, again, proof that he did actually know who was there. Mm -hmm. Um, And in October, Tex was found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count conspiracy to commit murder. Um, The jury did only deliberate for six hours. Susan also pleaded guilty to the Hinman murder, and Manson, Bruce Davis, and Clem were tried for the murders of Hinman and Shay, despite Shay's body never being found. Um, They were all found guilty on all counts. And Manson and Davis both received life sentences, and Clem received the death sentence, but the judge changed his, changed his to life as well. Um, the Manson girls continued their vigil outside the courthouse during all of these proceedings. On August 21st, 1971, six armed robbers arrived at the Western Surplus store after closing and stole 140 guns. So when they spotted police, the alley had already been closed off, which resulted in firing on both sides. So the robbers were... Shocker here, guys. I know you guys are not expecting this to be involved with the Manson family at all. But they were Mary Brunner, Catherine Scher, Dennis Rice, Lawrence Bailey, and Kenneth Kenneth Como. Um, Charles Lovett escaped but was later apprehended. Um, Again, they were all members of the Manson family. And rumors had started spreading the month before about Manson family members trying to help Manson escape. So... Clearly, this is all part of an escape attempt, but the specific plan is even more bizarre than you would imagine. So they said they were going to use all these guns to hijack a plane and kill one person every hour until all of the Manson family members were released. Okay. So all of them were found guilty of armed robbery and sentenced to between two and 20 years each. On October 20th, 1971, Kenneth Como hacksawed through the bars of his jail cell and made a rope of bed sheets and climbed down five floors to kick in a window and leave prison via the stairs. And good old Sandra Good picked him up. That was pun not even intended. Um, <laughs> Sandra was quickly arrested, but Como was on the run for seven hours before being captured. Um, Sandra was arrested and given six months in jail for aiding and abetting an escape. On November 8, 1972, the body of 26-year-old United States Marine James T. Willett was discovered near the Russian River Resort community of Gurnerville in Northern California, and on November 11th, police saw his station wagon parked outside of a house in Stockton, California. 
Inside, they found two men and two women with X's carved into their foreheads. They also found freshly turned earth in the basement, and after obtaining a search warrant and digging, they found the body of James James's wife, Lauren Willett. So one of the women claimed that Lauren had killed herself playing Russian roulette. You know, that excuse is old, guys. It's not, it's not working anymore. Did that many people actually play Russian roulette? Right? I don't... I would hope not. I, I don't know the statistics on that, but... <laughs> So while in the house, the group received a call from another woman asking to be picked up. So police picked her up instead of the family members, and it turned out to be none other than Squeaky Fromm. So she was arrested along with the other four that had been in the home, Priscilla Cooper, Nancy Pittman, Michael Monfort, and James Craig. So four of the five pleaded guilty to either murder or accessory after the fact, um, but the charges against Squeaky were dropped due to insufficient evidence, and the Willets had been associated with the family for about a year at the time of their deaths. So the year after the family was convicted, the death penalty in California was abolished, and because California did not have a sentence of life without parole at that time, all of the convicted family members' sentences were changed to life with the possibility of parole. Ronnie Howard was assaulted several times and even had a bullet shot through her window for snitching. Um, She was beaten to death in 1979, but police claim it was unrelated to her role in the Manson murder investigation and trial, which I'm not sure how you could definitively know that, but... Yeah. Um, Virginia Graham opened a spa with her reward money, so she's (laughs) bettering her life over here. Yeah. On September 25th, 1984, inmate Jan Holmstrom doused Manson with paint thinner and set him on fire, causing second and third degree burns to 20% of his body. Where did he get paint thinner or an electric, uh, I don't like a lighter? Know. I don't know. What's happening? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, he said that he attempted to kill Manson because Manson disagreed with his religion and he had threatened to kill him. He also said that God told him to kill Manson, which is confusing because I thought Manson was God. I don't know. It's a lot. (laughs) But he is me and I am him and I (laughs) killed him to kill me. (laughs) Oh, boy. So Charles Manson also received money every time a T-shirt with his face and name on it were sold. And Guns N' Roses also used one of his songs and he made money from that as well. So California law said that money could be could not be made if directly related to the crime. So as long as his crimes were not mentioned, he was allowed to profit from things that did not bring them up, which is that's the only reason you're known. But okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but this did allow Wojtek's son to receive a judgment against Manson. So he was actually able to get money because Manson did have money because of this. So that's yeah. good. So Squeaky and Sandra moved to be closer to Manson. Although they weren't allowed to visit him in prison, they would go to the prison about once a month and ask about him. Um, They still believed that Charles Manson was the second coming of Jesus Christ, so they spent all of their time preparing for that. These two are just... Okay. So Squeaky is also infamously known for attempting to assassinate President Gerald Ford in 1975. So Ford stopped to take a picture with a citizen and Squeaky grabbed a gun from under her robe, but it didn't go off and the Secret Service tackled her and arrested her. Um, They did find that there was no bullet in the chamber, so they didn't know if she, like, just wanted to go to prison and wasn't actually trying to kill him or if she just didn't know how guns worked. Mm -hmm. Who knows? (laughs) She was charged and convicted of attempting to assassinate a president and she was actually the first woman to be charged with this in the United States and she was sentenced to life in prison. 
She briefly escaped in 1987 in an attempt to go see Manson, but was caught. And she was granted parole in 2009 and now lives somewhere in upstate New York. Just terrifying. Out there. Among us. Yeah. Not going to upstate New York, I guess. <laughs> so Tex Watson married a Norwegian woman named Kristen in 1979, and they had four children together through conjugal visits. He did become a born-again Christian and led Bible study groups and preached to the inmate congregation and also started sending out a monthly newsletter and religious cassette tapes. Conjugal visits were denied for prisoners serving life sentences in California in the late 90s, and Sharon Tate's mother was a part of this group advocating for this because she's like, you took away my grandchildren, like my grandchild, Mm -hmm. you should not be allowed to produce children. And the LaBianca's daughter, Suzanne Struthers, visited Tex in prison and spoke out for him during his parole hearing in 1990. What did he, he say to her? <laughs> right? He murdered your parents. And you you think he should be given parole? Bizarre. Okay. And he and his wife divorced in 2003. He is still in prison today and has been denied parole 17 times. He's continuing in his godly Christian ways, apparently, and preaching and doing all kinds of things. Um, All of the killers eventually renounced Manson and expressed remorse. Um, Susan and Tex both wrote books as well. And Susan said to Sharon's mom, There are no words to describe what I feel. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Those words are so overused and inadequate for what I feel. Susan married a man named Donald Lee Leisure in 1981. (laughs) Leisure spells the S in his last name with a dollar sign and claimed to be worth $999 million. And Susan was his 36th wife. Oh my god. You can't can't make up this shit. I just... It's still going. (laughs) Oh lord. Oh boy. They did file for divorce the next year and Susan did remarry in 1987. In prison, she received an associate's degree and took paralegal courses, as well as courses in vocational data processing. She did lose her parental rights to her son after going to prison, and none of her family members would take him in, so he was adopted, and his name was changed, and his whereabouts today are unknown. What? He was Zeus, 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 so thank God they changed his name. (laughs) Yes, thank God he has a new name, and good for him that he's able to live a life separate from this nonsense. Um, Susan Atkins died in prison of brain cancer in 2009. She did apply for compassionate release after she was diagnosed, but it was denied. Um, Leslie was given a new trial because the judge should have granted a mistrial when her attorney disappeared and was later found dead. So she was out on bail for a while before her new trial, but was convicted again. She did have a brief marriage and received a bachelor's degree in English Lit while in prison. She is still in prison today and has been denied parole 19 times. Patricia received a bachelor's degree and also took vocational data processing courses. She became a physical trainer for other inmates, and she and Leslie were both counselors for young people with drug problems as well. Um, She has been denied parole over a dozen times, and in one of her recent attempts, she tried to use the batter woman syndrome as a defense, but it was denied. Like, that's that's used for murdering the person beating you, not that the person beating you told you to kill someone else, but whatever. She is still in prison today. Stephen Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, was released in 1988, and he expressed remorse for his actions. Um, He actually received an airplane engine mechanic license, and in 1977, he gave police the location of Shay's body, which was about a quarter of a mile away from the ranch. And he was not beheaded like many claimed, um, Mm -hmm. but he was for sure murdered by the Manson family. 
Bobby Boussoulet is still in prison where he continues to make music and the parole board recommended parole in January of 2019, but California's governor denied it. Bruce Davis remains in prison for the murders of Hinman and Shea. He is married and has one child and serves as a minister in the prison chapel. Again, the parole board has recommended parole, but it's always been denied by the governor. Sandra served 10 years of her 15-year sentence. Um, She was not allowed in California as a condition of her parole, so she lived in Vermont until her parole ended and then moved back to California to be closer to Manson, even though she was not allowed to visit him. And as recently as 2006, she was still speaking publicly about Manson and declaring his innocence. Um, Her whereabouts today are unknown. Linda Kasabian has changed her name and tries to live a quiet life out of the spotlight. You don't really know where she lives, where her children are, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Manson's first son with Rosalie lived under the name of Jay White for the rest of his life, and he actually killed himself in Burlington, Colorado in 1993. So it's unknown if his upbringing had anything to do with that, um, but super sad. Manson's second son with Leona also changed his name and little is known about him today. His third son with Mary Brunner, Valentine Michael Manson, was raised by his grandparents, so um, Mary's parents. Um, He did believe that his mother was his sister and didn't know who his father was until he was in third grade. Um, He has a son and was a salesman for a plumbing supply company, and he never met Manson, and he told a reporter in 1993 that he wanted nothing to do with him. Charles Manson died on November 19th, 2017, from colon cancer while in prison. And in other wild news, on July 3rd, 2020, Ariana Jean Walk, who is the daughter of Suzanne Struthers and granddaughter of Rosemary LaBianca, was stabbed to death in Denver, Colorado. Apparently, it was, like, very similar to her grandmother's death. So, oh gosh. Suzanne lost both her mother and her daughter to a random horrific stabbing. Wow, that's yeah. horrible. So... Ariana Jean Walk was 40 years old and found dead on July 3rd um, in her apartment in Denver, and 24-year-old Jose Sandoval Romero was charged with first-degree murder. Um, So she had been the victim of domestic violence, and her abuser was ordered to stay away from her and did have um, a GPS ankle monitor, Um, but her murder was unrelated to her previous domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And they were able to confirm via the man's GPS ankle monitor that it was not him. So that's why that was relevant. But just bizarre that all these years later, um, she was also the victim of the stabbing. Yeah. So that is the absolutely wild story of Charles Manson and his cult and the murders of Sharon Tate, Wojtek Frykowski, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Stephen Parent, Leno LaBianca, Rosemary LaBianca, Donald Shea, and Gary Hinman, and probably countless others that we are not aware of at this time. Including other family members, probably. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, other, the other suspected, Zero and Joe Pugh and the attorney, Ronald Hughes, and mm-hmm. all of these people. So, Courtney... As we approach our two-hour of this two-parter, what is your perk of the week? I was going to say, I think this might be our longest episode to date. Um, Yes. So, 
My perk of the week is I have officially changed my last name. Oh. So I still have a few more things I have to update. I'm still waiting for my new license in the mail, but it is mm-hmm. official. I have a new last name. I got really, really sentimental when it was time to change my name. So I <laughs> actually just tacked my last name on to my middle name and have mm-hmm. two middle names now because I didn't want to drop my middle name either. Yeah. You know, 27 years as one person, it's hard to drop that <laughs> yeah, name. Um, absolutely. So, um, but yeah, so I officially have a new last name and it's pretty crazy. It's pretty weird. Yeah. Courtney sent me her part one file for editing and had her new initials and I'm like, who's this? I don't know this person. <laughs> I know. I'm trying, like, I keep forgetting to, like, use it. Like, I'm still, I'm both <laughs> yeah. at this point. I'm having an identity crisis, so... I'm sure it'll take a while. (laughs) Yeah, like slowly having to like update things. I don't even want to get started on what all the work stuff I have to do to change my name. I'm dreading (laughs) that. But as far as the social security office is concerned, I have a new last name. The official legal name. (laughs) Yes, that's my official legal name. Um, But yeah, so that is my perk of the week. Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? Um, So today is my first Mother's Day. Um, So that is my perk of the week. Um... As I'm sure you know, I did lose my mom a few years ago, so this day is tough, um, but it is more bittersweet now, um, so mm-hmm. it is special that I get to celebrate it with my daughter. So I did wake up this morning to flowers and some candy and treats from my daughter, actually my husband, because my one-year-old <laughs> did not go out and get them. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, you save their phones. They already know how to I know, right? Like, I'll just DoorDash this year. Uh, and then right as Courtney and I began recording, I also got another surprise from Courtney and our mutual best friend, Tiffany. Um, so they sent me flowers and chocolate and goodies as well um, to celebrate Mother's Day and also to honor and recognize my mom this Mother's Day and that it is you know, a bittersweet day, but it is special. And then um, Andrew is also making me brunch as soon as we finish recording. So I'm going to go nice. have some, I think he's doing some breakfast tacos and mimosas. So super excited about that. <laughs> that sounds like a good day. And um, yeah, also Tiffany and I, since we live far away, scheduled an Instacart. <laughs> and apparently if you're sending a gift option, it sends the <laughs> The, the card right away. So um, <laughs> just know this about me. Um, I care deeply about people and want to do nice things for them. I'll always fuck it up somehow. Something's always going to go wrong. Okay? Just know that. Know I yeah. care so deep in my soul. And it's never going to come out like it's supposed to. But, you but know, that makes it, it me. <laughs> it makes it all the more special. I got the card texted to me Friday night and I was like I don't think I'm supposed to see this now but then I also was like I'm afraid not to say something now because what if they meant to send this now and then they're like does she just not going to acknowledge that we sent so I'm like um guys I don't know and Courtney's like god damn it yeah because I was like Instacart this is so nice you can send a card you can schedule it you can do all this so I'm like why wouldn't you send the card when the order is delivered you know when it's completed yeah. Then send the card. Because we didn't want you to just, like, have stuff on your porch and be like, what the fuck is is this from? (laughs) Who do I text? Who is this from? (laughs) Yeah, so Instacart, if you guys are listening, you might want to update that gift feature. (laughs) Yeah, Instacart, if you're listening, update that gift feature. Um, But, yeah, and happy, very belated Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. And Mm -hmm. if you are having a hard Mother's Day because you no longer have your mom or don't have a good relationship with your mom, we see you and Mm -hmm. we understand. Um, 
But I think it's about time to wrap this up. If you want to find do. us, you know where it is. Like, it's <laughs> in the description. We say it every week. Yes. If you want a bonus, Patreon has a bonus coming out right now where we talk a little bit more about Charles Manson and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I just don't think we have time to list all of our stuff. So just look in our description. You'll see it all. But in the meantime, have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Bye.